Anybody else a context person? You just, you just have to know why. Okay, um, I learned this pretty early about myself. Uh, when I was 15, I got pulled over by a police officer. And I've been pulled over multiple times, but this first time happened when I was 15. And uh, I, I was not driving recklessly. I was not under the influence of any substances. I was not even speeding. My crime against the state is that uh, I was not wearing a seatbelt. Anybody ever been got, anybody ever gotten a ticket for not wearing a seatbelt? All right. So as you can imagine, I'm 15. My brain's not really fully developed anyway. Not sure it is even now. But I remember the cop pulling me over and coming to my window and writing me a ticket for not wearing my seatbelt. And my first question, the first response out of my mouth as a context guy was, what? What? Why? And I tried. I can remember being 15 years old and just starting out driving and just arguing for a while with this officer. And eventually, you, you know how that goes. It was kind of like, yeah, well, guess what? Pay the ticket. Nobody cares. So I, I just, I'm a context person. All right. And I, why is everything to me? I've been miserable for every boss that's ever led me because the simplest little thing, the simplest command, the simplest instruction, you know, hey, Caleb, you know what we're going to do in quarter two? We're going to allocate receipts. It's like, why? You know, why? why? We're, we're going to answer those emails. Why? That's my first, it's, it's, it's hard. Uh, I thought this was just kind of like a, you know, a cheeky personality style thing until I started having children. And Lord willing, I'll stop having children here soon. Um, but my middle kid, anybody, anybody in here a middle child? All right, we are the problem with everything. But the middle kid, here's, here's what he does. He, he cannot get why he has to wear underwear. He just, he won't wrap his mind around it, or he can't. It doesn't matter, church, funerals, grocery store, school, it just, it doesn't matter to him. He just, he can't understand. And so I'm seeing this in him now. I'm just telling you all of this to give you some insight into how I read the Bible, all right? If you think that I'm scattered, you should be inside my brain when I try to read the Bible. It is a true, it's a true fight, you know, I'm, I'm working through it. But when I read a Bible verse, when I read anything, my first response is not, oh, praise the Lord, God, that's beautiful. Oh, man, look at just the, the word just speaking to me right now. My first, my first thing I do is, what? Why? Why does it say that? Why does, why does Paul write that? Why did Jesus say that? Why did they say it there and not there? So if you are a context person, I'm going to spend the next few minutes trying to help you understand why I'm so excited about the three verses of Scripture that I've got to teach you. All right. If you're not a context person, the next seven minutes will be a good time for a little nap. I'll wake you up in a minute and we'll get into the points. Paul writes Romans to some Christians in Rome, right? We can all understand that. About 57 AD, so 20 to 25 years after the, the death, burial, resurrection of Christ, Paul is visiting churches, churches that he's planted, churches that have been planted, and he's, he's checking things out, and he finds himself in Corinth, and from Corinth, he writes this letter back to the Roman Christians. It's his longest single letter in the New Testament. And unlike some of Paul's other letters, some of his letters, if you read them, it, letters in the New Testament, some of them are correcting sort of behavior. If you read his letter to the Corinthians, he's dealing with all kind of wonky stuff. I mean, you know, you, you can get in and read some of that. Some of it he's ordering how to sort of structure your church, right? Because you got to think these, this, the church is brand new. Nobody really has an established way of doing things. So Paul is giving advice and wisdom on how to sort of structure your church. But Romans, the letter in Romans is different because it's this beautiful sort of theological, you know, letter to instruct them on not just what they should do, but on what they should believe, on who we should be as people. And it's really actually fascinating the language that he uses. So Rome at the time is ruled 
by an emperor. The time that the letter gets there, it's ruled by this emperor named Nero, all right? If you don't know about Nero, 10 out of 10, bad guy. Would not recommend. Sort of crazy all over the place. But one of the things that we're going to get into today that will come back up is that Nero has an interesting part of his story. The idea of adoption was sort of new to the inside the Roman world. Now, we have cultures in history, we have evidence of cultures that would care for orphans, right? So adoption as like an idea was around, but the Romans were the first ones to legalize it. Meaning, I could take you and legally make you become a part of my family. This was done by the rich and powerful, uh, so they could pretty much carry on their family legacy. They could maintain power structures. But this was a huge deal because legally, taking someone from another family and bringing them into your family doesn't just mean that they're responsible or that you would be responsible for their sort of social welfare, right? It doesn't mean that you would necessarily just put up an extra bed in your, in your estate. It means that you are legally entitled to the estate. That was it. It was the first time we see this happening. And so all of this is rolling around. Well, Nero, when he was a young man, he, his father died. So he was adopted by his uncles, a man named Claudius. Claudius was the emperor, and so uh, which made Nero next in line for the throne. Now here's the problem. Nero took over power when he was 16 years old. There's lots of speculation about why Nero was such a horrible person. The one that makes the most sense to me is that he just was 16 when he took over the modern world. Anybody hung out with a 16-year-old lately? Anybody want to give him the keys to the free world right now? No? Okay, yeah. Well, apparently 2,000 years ago was a pretty bad idea as well. So this is the context that Paul encourages and writes the letter to the Romans. And it's, it's fascinating because just a couple of years after this letter gets from Corinth to the churches in Rome... Just a couple of years after it gets there, this huge fire is going to break out in Rome. A lot of the city is going to be destroyed, and Nero is going to blame it on the Christians. And, and it's going to begin a season of persecution for the Christians. It's going to begin a season where they are martyred, and they are tortured, and they are slandered against, and they are scattered throughout the empire. It's about to get very, very bad for Christians in the first century in Rome when Paul writes this letter. That's the context that we pick up Romans Chapter 8. So all of that being said, let's read the scriptures that i got to get through today. All right? Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 17. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, daughters of God. That word means both. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters, by whom we cry, Abba. We're going to come back to that word. Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. <clears throat> and if we're children, then we're heirs. Heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that history has just absolutely testified to the gospel. For the way that every culture, um, every people group, every portion of history, there's been one story that just emerges. And it's just the glory of God seen in the man Jesus Christ. The power that you have to 
make room in your family for people like us to transform us from the inside out and to set forth for us a life that we could never earn on our own, that we could truly live a life marked by the victory that Christ has won for us and live free to not pursue all of our own victories, but rather we can be marked by the victory won for us in Christ. In his name we pray, amen. All right, point number one, if you're a note taker, if you're not, you can just sit there and think for a little bit. Point number one, we are led by the spirit of God, not the spirit of slavery or fear. You and I, as believers in Jesus, we are led by the spirit of God, not the spirit of slavery and fear. Now, the Christians that were in Rome were different kinds of Christians. You have to go with me here for a second to understand this. There were Jewish Christians in Rome, meaning they could trace their ancestry, they could trace their lineage, their diet was primarily Jewish, their culture, their family, their education, the way they ran their lives was culturally and historically Jewish. They would trace their family, their story, their religious identity back to the Hebrew people, if you remember, who found themselves enslaved in Egypt under Pharaoh. So you have that, and they've come to faith in Christ, in Jesus as the Messiah, but they've got this cultural Jewish thing going on while they're trying to reconcile Jesus as Lord. Now, on the other side of the coin, you have non-Jewish Roman Christians. Rome, as this center of culture and history and art and philosophy and all these things that are going on, has all sort of diversity represented in the empire. And so you have people coming to faith in Christ from a, an extremely religious background, all sorts of different religions. You have people coming to Christ from an, an irreligious background, and they're trying to figure out how they relate to the Jewish Christians. And in the middle of this, Paul encourages them with this. You are not led by the spirit of slavery to lead you back into fear. And this is a nod to the story about when the Jewish people, when the Hebrew people had found themselves being delivered miraculously by God out of Egypt through the sea and wandering around in the desert. And if you can recall the story in the book of Exodus, if you haven't read it in a while, go read it, it's fascinating. They find themselves in the middle of the desert They've been delivered from their enemies. They're being provided for miraculously. And the thought that emerges from them is, maybe we should go back to Egypt and be slaves. Because at least we had like meals and beds, right? So they're in this weird middle ground between where they used to be and who they used to be. And they're not quite in the promised land of Canaan in houses they didn't build, eating grapes from vineyards they didn't plant and all the glorious promises they have. And in the meantime, they have this thing that goes on where they say, maybe it would be better if we go back to slavery in Egypt. And in a really beautiful way, this mirrors the same temptations that you and I face every single day. That as the Spirit of God works in us to lead us into a life of freedom, we're always going to fight this temptation to go back to our former masters, to go back to our former bosses of, of sin and greed and you know just the carnal things that tie you down, the, the, the ways that your flesh wants to make you believe that you're who you used to be. This was Lee's whole message last week. And it's a beautiful reminder to see here. This is why Paul writes to him and he says this, look, man, that spirit that makes you afraid of your peers at work, that spirit that makes you just afraid of being even a little bit uncomfortable, that's not the spirit that leads your life. It's the spirit of God that leads your life. And it's good to be reminded of this over and over. Look at this verse of scripture, Hebrews chapter two, verse 14 and 15. This is where it gets really awesome. Some of you guys are gonna love this. Now, since the children have flesh and blood in common, 
Jesus also shared in these so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is, the devil, that he might free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. Listen, the Christians in Rome, the fear for them was not just this like ethereal fear of discomfort or this fear of what happens if I... The fear that they had was the genuine real fear that they were getting ready to die because of their religious affiliation with Jesus. And Paul says, and to remind them, at the end of the day, you know what we all have in common? We all eat, we all poop, and we all die. Everybody you've ever met is going to die. And before the resurrection of Christ, that was a really huge deal for people. Because it doesn't matter how much you can sort of build. It doesn't matter how wealthy you can become. It doesn't matter how big your family is. It doesn't matter how satisfied you become as a human being. you got to die. And so until Jesus came and conquered death, death was like the enemy at the end of the game for us, right? He's like the final boss on the last level of the game. And he can't be beat. He's undefeated until he wasn't. And that's why two weeks ago at Easter, we all put on our pastels and we come party so hard. Because death's not the end for us anymore. And these Roman Christians who were getting ready to actually die, they were getting ready to be, I mean the stories. If you go read Eusebius and the way he documents the way Christians were treated in Rome in the first century. Tied behind chariots and drugged through the city. Thrown in the arena. They had their hamstrings pulled out from the back of their legs so they couldn't run from the lines. I mean, it was awful. And guess what Paul says? Yeah, I know it's going to stink, but death doesn't really matter that much anymore. Because Christ, in resurrecting from the dead, has conquered the final enemy. And now you and I get to look forward to the resurrection from our own deaths. That's awesome. Paul's basically saying, if death, which is the thing we should all be afraid of, has been beaten then what is there to actually be afraid of anymore? The answer is, well, nothing, I guess, huh? Okay, that's good news. All right, point number two. We have been adopted by God. And as his children, oh, adopted by God as his children, and his spirit in us is proof. We've been adopted by God as his children, and the spirit in us is proof. This is huge. If you recall the verses in, uh, in chapter 8 that we read, there's a word in there that I want to point out for a second. The word is Abba. This is an interesting word. It's, a, it's not a word that I use frequently. I don't speak Aramaic. Uh, at least I don't try to. And so uh, this is a word that only appears three times in the entire New Testament. And the times that it appears are really, really fascinating. One is in chapter 8 that we just read. The other one is in a verse in Galatians chapter 4 I want to read for you. In uh, verses 6 and 7, Here's what this is another letter from Paul to the Christians in Galatia. Here's what he says. Because your sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then God has made you an heir. Do you see the similarities in language between the letter in Galatians and the letter here to the Romans? Obviously, Paul wants them to know that God has adopted you. But you know where the other place is? And this is what I think is really the strength of this word, Abba. The other place that this is used is in Mark chapter 14. Let's read this. I wanna, I'll give you the context first. Jesus has just finished celebrating the, uh, the Passover with his disciples. And during the Passover meal, uh, he reveals that, you know, he's going to be betrayed. 
and he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. He takes a couple of his boys, he heads into the garden to pray to kind of spend some time with God and get his mind right before what would be a very challenging few days for him. And look at this, Mark chapter 14, verse 33. He took Peter, James, and John with him. And he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. He said to them, I'm deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake. He went a little farther and he fell to the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. The reason this is so powerful is because what we have as an example of Jesus in the garden, at his most human moment, when he's trying to negotiate with God to get out of his contract, he doesn't refer to God as just. He doesn't refer to God as creator. He doesn't in prayer refer to God as powerful or righteous or any of those things. What does he call God? Dad. That in the moment when Jesus was being pinched and squished and he was just absolutely grieved to the point of death, the thing that was able to sustain him and carry him was God, his father. This is, this is a really sort of ironic uh, encouragement from Paul here, right? In, when, when Jesus is getting ready to face the most injustice, it would have been good for him to pray to God as the just God, right? When Jesus is getting ready to face suffering, it would have been good for him to, to sort of, you know, address God as the one who can redeem the suffering, but he doesn't. What does he do? What does he cry out? God as Father, and Paul uses the same words here to encourage these Roman Christians that are about to get smashed in Rome. Why? Nothing, nothing can encourage you like a relationship with God as dad. The basis of our relational status with God is son and daughter. One of my favorite preachers um, is a William Sloan Coffin. You probably would find him extremely boring, but he has this quote that I thought was really awesome. He says, while religions do differ, most seek to fulfill the same basic function. You ready? They strive first to help people out of the misery of feeling unimportant. There is no loneliness. There's no sadness. There is no lostness like feeling like you just don't matter. And if you are a Roman Christian... And just because you have publicly declared Christ as your Savior, you're now forced to live underground and you can't do or be the things that you were. You're probably getting ready to be faced with the thought, does this really matter? And do I really matter? And the encouragement is, not only do you matter, but you matter to God. And you have been adopted into his family as a son or a daughter. This is amazing. This is amazing that the best sort of thing that can happen for us is not just that God would forgive our sins in Christ, right? That's where we began in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. That because of Jesus, we've been forgiven of our sins. Our record of wrongs has been, you know, cleared. This is incredible. But too many of us, we finish there instead of doing what the Bible encourages, which is begin there. Begin with your record of wrongs being cleared on the cross, 
so that we can step into the full identity as adopted sons and daughters. All right, point number three. If we are God's children, then we will receive an inheritance. Now, this is where we have to use our imagination, and some of the scriptures are, you know, kind of wild on this, but it's pretty awesome. If you were adopted by Warren Buffett, right? Actually, I think he's the one that's given all his money away before he dies. Maybe bad, bad, bad idea. So I'm not talking about him. Um, let's, okay, let's say you get adopted by Jeff Bezos, right? And you get written into his will as somebody that's going to inherit his estate, right? Probably a pretty good day in your life. What does it mean for us to be adopted into the family of God and for the Bible to tell us that we will receive an inheritance as co-heirs with Christ? What does it mean that you and I are going to inherit the same thing that Jesus inherits? Have you thought about that? I mean, go, I'll, I'll go back and read the verse to you. It says this. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if we're children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, that we may be glorified with him. What Paul is trying to say here is, if you've been adopted into the family of God, you have an inheritance that's been guaranteed to you. And that spirit that you have inside of you that leads you, that spirit is proof of your inheritance. All right, so Revelation chapter 21. John has this, you know, sort of wild encounter and he records for us. And this is where we get some of our ideas, our assumptions, our prayers about what the new earth will be, about what life will be for us when Jesus returns. So he goes through, he talks about a new heaven and a new earth, an earth that's not underneath the curse of sin anymore. Imagine how gorgeous and amazing that's gonna be. Talks about bodies that are no longer gonna be subjected to the curse of sin. We're all gonna look exactly like we want, or at least that's what I'm hoping, right? It'd be awesome. Revelation chapter 21, verse seven. Here's what he says. The one who conquers, the one marked by victory, will inherit these things. What things? New heaven, new earth. I will be his God, he will be my son. At the least, at the very least, do you know what this means for us? If we are truly, if we're to take this as not just Paul, you know, from Corinth, sort of trying to gas up the Roman Christians and move them on so they can get through some suffering. If there's any truth in this, that we are going to inherit the new earth to rule and reign in the same way that Christ is. I mean, think about the way the scriptures talk about Jesus and his authority and his future authority. And then Paul says, guess what? You are going to rule and reign with him as co-heirs. All right, at the very least, you know what this means for us? When life is going swimmingly for you, when you got the Midas touch and your family's blessed and your kids aren't acting like psychopaths and, you know, and your business is working and everything's going great, take it with a grain of salt, huh? Because it pales in comparison to being an inheritor of the new earth, right? It's like, you know what you can do? You can, you can live your whole life on mission then. You can live generous. You can share. You can, you can stay focused, understanding that, man, this, no matter how much I experience now, this pales in comparison to what's coming for me on the very second that Christ returns. What else does this mean? Well, if life stinks for you, if you feel lost as a ball in tall weeds, if you can't find your way out, right? If, you, if you're out of answers and you got a whole lot of questions, if you're weak and you don't know where you're going to find strength, hey, get your head up, huh? You inherit the new earth one day. 
I think that the whole point of Paul's letter here is looking at, I mean, thinking about the landscape of the, the, the diversity that was represented in Rome. Wealthy people ruling the empire, coming to faith in Christ. Poor people being traded around as slaves all around the empire. Everybody coming to faith in Christ. And here's Paul's encouragement. Don't forget that God is primarily father. He's dad. Because that'll get you through a whole lot of stuff. God as dad will get you through a good day when you feel like, you know what, I'm killing it. It'll keep you grounded. It'll keep you focused. God as dad will get you through the worst of circumstances because you realize that, man, I got, a, I got an amazing thing coming for me one day. I can make it through this. This suffering's not even worth comparing to the glory that's coming for me one day. Pfft, water under the bridge, man. So as we wrap today, as we, we finish up, here's my just honest question, just honest assessment. Where are you at today? Where are you today with the knowledge that God primarily wants to relate to you as your father? That God is, is, is significantly more so concerned with who you are as his child than he is about the things that you're doing. Is, is being a part of God's family a religious sort of duty to you? Or is it a joy? Do you have the easy yoke and the light burden of being a son or a daughter of God? with your faith just focused on the future, that man, one day, no matter what happens to me here and now, if there's any encouragement we can take from those three verses, it's this, God's got it, God's got it. So we're gonna respond today. And again, I told you I'm a context person. I always, when we go to sing a song or we go to respond at the end, I always think, why, why, what are we doing? Um, and I think, here's the way I think about it, because of technology and because I'm cheap, I read all of my books now on my phone right, or on my tablet, because they're, you know, anyway, and which makes it hard when I want to put, when I want to put a bookmark in something, right, when I want to go back, so the thing I miss about paper books is I can just put a bookmark in it, or as my five-year-old son calls it, a left offer, I can put it in there, and we can go back to it, I can know where I am, but there's this cool thing, you can push a button, and you can just, you know, make a bookmark in it, here's the way I think about it, response time at the end of the day, before we leave and go get back into the, you know, the, the cycle of the week, is us just putting a bookmark in what God's doing in our lives, so that you can go back to this day, this moment, this time, you can go back and you can say, man, you know what? God was really working on me about not really understanding what it means for God to be my father. You can go back to this and you can say, you know what? I'm not led by the spirit of fear. I'm tired of my life being controlled by people's thoughts and opinions of me. I'm tired of never being able to actually follow Jesus because I'm so scared. And you can go, you know what? Today I was reminded that I'm actually led by the spirit of God, not the spirit of fear. It's putting a bookmark in it so you can go back. We're gonna sing this song. The song's called Abba. It's just, you know, I just thought it was the best way to finish the day today. More than likely, you've never heard this song, so you might not be able to, you know, pick up on it right away. But it's amazing, and it will minister to you either way. So if you're on the, uh, one of our ministry teams at every campus, would you mind, uh, go ahead and come down front. These people have magic powers, and when they pray, I'm just kidding. Um, no, I always, I always think that would be a funny thing, right? No, but these people, you know what they really do? They really love praying, and they wanna pray for you. And so today, as we've gone through these verses, if you're like, man, you know what? I need somebody to pray for me to experience God's love as father. These people would love to do that. So when we sing this song, when the band comes out at every campus and sings this song, you just come down front and you say, you know what? I want to not just know it, but I want to experience God as father today. Will you pray for me? Some of you, you may need to, you may need to sit in your seat and just sit like this and just ask God, to flood your heart with his love for you 
as his son or his daughter. You may feel like you just constantly let God down and you just need to hear him for the next four minutes say, no, you don't, and I love you, and you're my son or you're my daughter. That may be your response. Some of you, you, you may be like coming out of your skin, so you gotta stand up and sing and raise your hands or do some laps or whatever. You just may, maybe you need to respond like that. Maybe you need to come down here, you need to get on your knees, you need to say, you know what, God? I've been running from you because I thought you wanted to judge me before I realized how much you had done to save me and love me, and I wanna give my life to you. Today may be that day for you. So I'm gonna pray. And when I say amen, the band is gonna come. And you respond however you see fit. You put whatever bookmark you need to in today's journey so that you can leave today knowing that God in Christ has not just forgiven your record of wrongs, but he has sent his spirit into your heart by whom we cry, Abba. And that God as your father has an inheritance for you and for me that just is absolutely going to blow our minds. All right, so let me pray. Father, I'm so grateful to be a part of your family. I'm so grateful to be welcomed in as a son. I'm so grateful to not just have to worry about the record of wrongs that I have against you, not only in my past, but that grows daily. That in Christ, I am genuinely forgiven. I'm free. And as a free son, I have the ability to listen to your Holy Spirit, to live my life led by your spirit, not led by a spirit of fear, not led by a spirit of comfort, not led by a spirit of greed, but I have you inside of me to speak to me and to guide me. And that I have this promise for me that no matter how the next 40-ish years go for me, that because of Christ, because of the work that you have done, that I have an inheritance coming that I could never have earned on my own. And I'm grateful, God, to be, to be welcomed into a life where my primary purpose is to enjoy you, to serve you, to love you, to, to work with you, to build your world in a way that just is exactly what's been in your heart from the beginning. So today, God, my prayer is for anybody in here who is struggling to know you as Father for these next few minutes, would you just be so close to them? Holy Spirit, would you come to the room right now? Would you just minister to anybody today who has a, a, a reason that they can't relate to God as Father and would you just be so near to them?